Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Let's open our Bibles right now to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We are continuing our series on the fruit of the Spirit. And in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he says that God the Holy Spirit will grow His people in specific ways. Ways that look actually a lot like Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And during this pandemic, we're encouraging our church, as I just said, uh, to view themselves as a greenhouse, not a bunker. A bunker is concerned only with safety. Safety is good. Survival is good. But a bunker mentality is concerned only with safety and survival. Uh, But we're encouraging our church to view this moment as a greenhouse moment. While it's uncomfortable and while it's unnatural, uh, greenhouses have a way of producing growth. And so what would it look like to grow in these areas? Well, we've already looked at love, and we've already looked at peace, and we've already looked at patience and kindness. So this week, we're going to be looking at goodness, goodness, which is important because of all of these areas of growth, I think goodness is the hardest to understand or the most unclear to me. I mean, think about what is goodness? What is goodness? Seriously, when we say That is a good person. What are we saying and what are we meaning by that? Are we just saying that person is nice? Are we saying that person is moral? Or are we just simply saying that person is the opposite of bad? And I think that's how we often use the word good when referencing the people. And so when Paul says goodness is a fruit of the Spirit, I think it's only natural for us to be a little bit unclear as to what uh, growth would even look like in the area of goodness. It's a hard word to define. And so this morning, what I'm going to be doing is taking us to a passage in Scripture that helps us define this word more clearly. It's a parable of Jesus, and he uses essentially the same word as Paul in Galatians 5.22. It's Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. What I'll do is I'll read it, and you can follow along. We'll pray, and we'll see what God has for us. So this is God's word. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, which, by the way, a denarius was the expected day wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. 
Now, when those hired first came, they thought that they received more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, am I, doing, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. In spirit, empower my preaching and open the hearts of all who are listening to your word that you inspired this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, lately I've been trying a life experiment, a life hack, if you will, which, by the way, I've often thought about this. It's a shame I'm not a self-help person because that would be an amazing book, Life Hack, with someone with my name. Uh, But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying something out. And others have called this approaching life with the minimum effective dose. The idea is that some things in life only need the minimum effective dose. And so the classic example that I've seen is boiling water, right? You should only apply heat to water until the water boils. Anything beyond that level of heat is not a good use of energy. Minimum effective dose. This could apply to exercise, and it often does. It could apply to reading the news. It could apply, obviously, to medicine. Well, I think it should apply to medicine. Minimum effective dose. And so that's what I'm experimenting with. The problem is, and here I'm going to be honest, I am tempted in my sin to take that idea of minimum effective dose and apply it to my relationships. Think about this for a second. Questions like this. What is the minimum effective dose of time that I can give this person? What is the minimum effective dose of help that I must give this person in need? And so in my sin, I often settle for a minimum effective dose in my relationships. No more and no less. The reality is that most of us, I think, live this way by default. We don't like to go above and beyond with others. And this might be for a number of different reasons. I'll just throw some out there. Maybe it's for self-protection. We think, if I give too much of my time, if I give too much of my resources, if I give too much of my attention, then I will just get taken advantage of, like I have in the past. And so, out of self-protection, our relationships are minimum effective dose. Maybe it's because of self-absorption. Nobody wants to admit they're self-absorbed, but a core teaching in the Bible is that because of the fall, a lot of, well, all of us are hardwired to be self-absorbed. It's the reality of sin. In fact, the ancient church described sin with a Latin phrase, in curvatus in se, which means curved in on itself. The human heart, apart from grace, apart from the gospel, the human heart Apart from all that, is 
curved in on itself because of sin. It's not the way God made us, but our sin distorted our hearts so that now it's curved in on itself instead of curved out towards God and towards others. In other words, self-absorption. So maybe we don't, we just approach our relationships with the minimum effective dose because of that. Or maybe it's because of self-congratulation. Think about this. We naturally don't want to give more to someone unless we think they deserve it, right? And that is often because we think we deserve everything that we have in our life that's above and beyond. There's nothing wrong with a healthy pride in our accomplishments. I mean, the Apostle Paul himself often boasted about his church plants. So there's a healthy pride. But that can quickly turn into a sinful pride where you make sure that nobody gets anything more than they deserve because, after all, you have only gotten what you deserve in life. Minimum effective dose. No more, no less. And because we're like this, because we're like this, I think we naturally assume that God is like this too. That he is close-handed, that he is cautious, and that he is calculated in his relationship to us. Only what we deserve, no more, no less. Minimum, effective dose. But God is not like us. Isaiah 55 warns us against making God in our own image. It says, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways. And so we think that God is close-handed when God is actually open-handed with us. We think that God is cautious, but God is passionate about his people. We think God is calculating with us, but God is gratuitous, verging on wasteful in how he distributes his blessings to us. God's ways are not like our ways at all. See, unlike us, God is generous. He's fully and perfectly generous. And God's generosity is all over his revelation of himself. In fact, it's the first thing you encounter in his word. Verse 1 of chapter 1 of book 1, the book of Genesis. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you might be thinking, how is that a statement of his generosity? It is a statement of his generosity. Just think about this. God didn't need to create. He didn't need to create. A.W. Tozer, he says, God has a voluntary relationship to everything he has made. God didn't need creation. He wasn't deficient. He volunteered creation. He volunteered it. C.S. Lewis says it a different way. He says, God loved everything into existence. God's creation, in other words, is proof of God's generosity. The triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, was doing perfectly fine without the world that he made, but God, out of loving generosity, loved the world into creation in order to love it in us. That's generous. That's very generous. Generous. And when we messed it all up, God didn't stop giving, did he? I mean, the story of the scripture is the story of God's generosity because on the other end of our scandalous 
refusal and rebellion against the generous God, what happens? He keeps giving and giving and giving and giving and giving and giving, culminating to the giving of His Son and the giving of His Spirit to what? To restore us. I mean, that God is a generous God. God goes above and beyond. He is not minimum effective dose at all. Now, why am I talking about this? Why am I talking about the generosity of God when we're talking today about goodness? Well, it's because when we try to sharpen the definition of goodness, that vague word I was telling you about earlier, in the Bible, what we find is that goodness closely resembles generosity. One Greek lexicon defines goodness in the Bible as, quote, the act of generous giving. According to my favorite Old Testament scholar, Christopher Wright, goodness means, quote, the person knows how to go beyond the strict limits of what the role demands. Goodness is when a person knows how to go beyond the strict limits of what the role demands. And so when Paul says goodness is a fruit of the Spirit, instead of vague notions of niceness or wholesomeness or being moral or being the opposite of bad, we should think goodness is the act of generous giving. A good person is a generous person. A person who has the Spirit will be generous. That's what Paul is saying. In fact, this is exactly how Jesus defines goodness in the parable that we just heard. At the end of the parable, in verse 15, if you look down, the landowner says, Do you begrudge me because I am generous? That word right there is literally good. Do you begrudge me because I'm good? And so Matthew 20 is a story about the goodness of God, which is to say, the generosity of God. And in this story, we encounter two main character groups. We see the master of the, of the vineyard and the laborers in the vineyard. And in the Bible, one of God's favorite ways of describing himself and his relationship to his people is by being, he is the master of the vineyard and his people are the vineyard that he planted. And so what this story is about, Jesus is telling us a story about God and his people. And what do we see? Well, we see two things, briefly. Our neediness, the people of God's utter neediness. And number two, God's generosity. I want to explore both. So first, this story exposes our deep need. So in Jesus' time, day laborers were extremely vulnerable. Um, And we see this in the story. Day laborers in verse 1, if you take a look, are all standing around the market center, dependent on the vineyard owner to give them work. And so in verse 2, the vineyard master hires them at the start of the workday, 6 a.m. And then three hours later, at 9 a.m., he sees more and hires them. The same thing happens at noon and then 3 p.m. And then in verse 6, if you continue looking down, the vineyard master sees more in the marketplace, but this time it's 5 p.m. It's 5 p.m., which is called the 11th hour, because in one more hour, the 12th hour, we hit 6 p.m., which is the end of the workday. So there's only one more hour in the workday. 
And so I'd like you to just try and imagine being in the marketplace at that hour. You've probably got to feed yourself. You're starving. You're hungry. You haven't eaten breakfast or lunch yet. And there is no possible way that someone is going to hire you now. And you just know it in your bones. It's too late. It's the 11th hour. Chad Hamilton at the Denver Institute for Faith and Work, he says, quote, think of the types of people whom no one else wanted to hire. It's very likely they were the widows and the orphans, the elderly and the disabled. These are people who lived in a substance culture who depended on daily work for food. They were powerless to provide for themselves and contingent on employers to give them the opportunity to earn a wage. Now, this trivializes, I think, the real need that these folks had. But try to think back to elementary school uh, recess. Because when I think back to elementary school recess, at least for me, I was never the captain picking teams. And so therefore, I was at the mercy of the captains. And I was always one of the last people picked. And if that was your story, then you feel the pain. If you were like me, you have a sense, at least a small sense, of what it would be like to be in the 11th hour and to be unpicked. That's exactly how we're supposed to feel in this story. We are all needy, and we need God to intervene in our lives. And so what happens next? Well, if what just happened illustrates our need, what happens next illustrates the generosity of God. The landowner in verse 8, if you take a look down, tells his foreman to call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So Jesus names this in verse 16 when he says the last will be first and the first last. There's something going on here that's a little bit out of whack. We see right away that Jesus is saying that in his kingdom, which is what this story is about, verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like dot, 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 this. Jesus is saying in God's kingdom, in God's kingdom, we ought to expect things to be a little bit upside down, a little bit different than how things roll in this broken kingdom, this kingdom marred by sin. In my kingdom, it's upside down. It's unexpected because it's the way things ought to be. And so what do we find in this passage? Well, we would expect the one-hour worker, those who are hired at the 11th hour, to get paid for one hour. But they get paid for 12 hours in verse 9. And this is unexpected. This is actually 12 times, 12 times what we would expect them to be paid. We would expect the three-hour workers to get paid for what? Three hours, but instead they get paid for 12, which is, I'm not a math expert, but I think four times more than what we would expect. And then we would expect the six-hour workers to get paid for a half a day, for six hours, but they get paid double what we would expect. And then we would expect the nine-hour workers to get, to get paid for exactly nine hours, wouldn't we? But they get paid for 12 again, which is a third more than we would expect. And so what about the 12-hour workers, those that were hired right away? Well, verse 11 says, they grumbled at the master of the house. To which the master of the house says, am I not allowed to, uh, to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my goodness, my generosity? New Testament scholar R.T. France writes, In a society with no welfare provision or trade unions, where unemployment meant starvation, the action of the landowner in employing extra workers, listen to this, whom he did not really need, 
so late in the day was an act of generosity. So think for a moment about the generosity of the landowner from the perspective of the one-hour worker. The landowner didn't need the 11th hour, the one-hour workers, but he hired them anyway. The landowner didn't need to pay them a day's wage. Everybody would understand, but he paid them a day's wage anyway. The landowner didn't need to walk back and forth to the marketplace throughout the day to see if there was more who had need. But that is God. All spring, I watched my wife uh, give her students that she was teaching digitally more than what was called for. More than what was expected with her job. And many of you have teachers that did the same thing uh, during this past uh, spring. They were called on to do this, and they actually did this. I saw my wife give a couple of student off-hour Zoom art lessons. And I think this is a, a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of what Jesus is talking about when he's saying that the landowner here is good. He's generous. He goes above and beyond. It's not minimum effective dose. It's above and beyond. In fact, Chris Wright says, Jesus is saying that good people don't always worry about what is strictly fair, but rather they like to err on the side of generosity and kindness. It was not the men's fault that they had been hired only toward the end of the day, he goes on, and they needed a day's wage to be able to buy food for their families. So the owner chooses to be good toward their needs rather than strictly fair in relation to all the works and pay them only a fraction of what the other got. See, we are needy, but God is so generous. Which means two things for you this morning. First, receive the generosity of God. We need to not just believe that God is generous, we need to receive in our person (laughs) In our heart, in our own story, we need to receive it. And I see two temptations against this in this text. Some of you will be tempted, I think, to doubt God's generosity, that it's even on offer to you. You think you're too far gone, you're too messed up, you've done too much, you've, rede- you've rejected God for too long. Jesus tells this story to convince you and people listening in at that time as well that that is just not the case. God is generous to latecomers, the last and the least of these. Others of you will be tempted to begrudge God's generosity. Um, If you have been following Jesus your whole life, or maybe you're proud of your Christian duty, the temptation for you will be to be like the older brother in the prodigal son story, who begrudges God's party, who begrudges God's generosity towards latecomers. People you think don't deserve the inheritance, because they didn't work for it. But in the kingdom... Friends, we know that even our best obedience is shot through with a deep need for God's grace and that we are in daily 11th hour need of generosity from God. Even if you can't remember the time where you didn't trust and follow Jesus, you are in an 11th hour 
need for God's generosity every single moment of your life. And Jesus tells the story so that we would delight in losing our priority. That we would delight in God's reversal. That the first will be last and the last first. So I want you to receive the generosity of God. And then I want you to allow the generosity of God to make you generous. I want you to allow God's generosity to then grow the fruit of generosity or goodness in your life. Theologian Miroslav Volf, he calls a standing midstream. Standing midstream of God's generosity means that we don't just stand on the very end of the stream receiving God's generosity, but we stand midstream of God's generosity so that it would flow around us and through our own life and story. I love that image. And I think this image also, in this story that Jesus gives us, also prevents patronizing others in our generosity. When the generosity of God is received by us, we will not patronize others with our generosity. How could we? Patronizing is when we give out of a sort of moral high ground. And we say, they're there. I wish that you were where I am, but I will help you. But when we give because we recognize our 11th hour need, that is true generosity. So what would it look like for you to practically grow in generosity this morning? Well, I think first you would start paying attention to others' needs. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, former pastor Tim Keller, he says this is the heart of biblical justice. And I'm quoting him, a concern for the most vulnerable, poor, and marginalized members of our society, those in the marketplace at the 11th hour, and making long-term personal sacrifices in order to serve their interests, needs, and cause. So generosity and justice go hand in hand. And we pay attention to others' needs. And like the landowner, we go above and beyond. I think also would mean that we would all move from what, what has been called floor thinking to ceiling thinking. Floor thinking from ceiling thinking. So floor thinking in the Christian life is very common. It's doing the bare minimum. It's asking the questions like, what do I have to do, God, for you to love me? What do I have to do? What are you calling me to do? And what's that bare minimum? What's that floor that I have to reach? Ceiling thinking, on the other hand, says, what do I get to do? How, how do I get to pile up more? I mean, tithing is the perfect example. If we're just thinking about what we have to do, Um, That is floor thinking. Instead, the generosity of God makes us think about the ceiling. Uh, Not just our money, frankly, but our time and our attention and everything that we have in our life. Instead of saying, what do we have to give of our time and our attention and our treasures? Like, what do we have to do? What's the floor? Generosity of God, I think, when we experience it, when we taste it, it releases us into the freedom of ceiling thinking. How can I pile on? And we start thinking, what is the ceiling and where is the ceiling? And, and, and can we keep piling on so that we might find it? And you never will, by the way. But it's such a joy and a freedom. And that's what the generosity of God keeps doing in the life of his people. And then finally, we pray for it. We pray for it. This is a fruit of the Spirit. This is a fruit of the Spirit, which means God is going to grow this in us by his Holy Spirit. So one of the best things we can do is to pray. 
And so why don't we just do that now? We'll do this as a way to close in our time studying this passage as well. Lord, we pray, we ask desperately for goodness to grow in our life. And like the landowner in the story that Jesus told, we want to go above and beyond. We want to pour out. We want to stand midstream of the generosity we've received from you so that we can be radically generous with other people. We don't want to keep track anymore. Lord, we, we don't want to calculate anymore. We don't want to be closed-fisted anymore. Lord, would you make us like your son, Jesus? Your son, Jesus, who, who, who went above and beyond to be generous to us. Who, though we were in sin and, and continue to sin, he did everything. Though he was rich, he became poor, that we might experience and have his inheritance. And so, Lord, we want to grow in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.